Well, it's been a very active, busy week in the lives of many of you. Some have had hospital stays, some have lost loved ones, some have had chronic illness spark up and have had challenges with that. Others have had those in your lives just become or continue their roads of being absolute train wrecks spiritually, relationally, and it's really been a brutal week for you. But again, this morning, as we see in, and will see in God's word, in the midst of all that's happening, you can know the reality of the presence of God in your life in spite of, in spite of the difficulties. And so as we consider what we're going to walk in in Isaiah 53, uh, this Isaiah prophet, about 250 years after the reign of King David, proclaiming the truth to these individuals about where their lives were. We, if we turn on the news, any type of media, for four minutes or less, we will quickly see different things that are happening, not only in our area, but in our world. And we can ask the question when... A terrorist takes attack on a group of people. We can ask ourselves the question, what's wrong with that person? When a group of people come against an individual and do great harm, heinous things, we can ask ourselves the question, what's wrong with people? We see a system of government from one country attack another we ask ourselves, what is wrong with our world? But while our minds go to those questions, I know that our minds naturally go to the question we need to ask first. As we slander, gossip, take pop shots at people through social media, as we wrongly engage those around us, First, we should be asking, what's wrong with me? Well, obviously, the answer to that question is sin. Hey, thanks, Darren. It's a Sunday. We're in church. We get it. We understand sin is a problem in all of our lives, but that is the truth. We live in a world full of sin. In our lives, even as followers of Jesus, for those of us who have surrendered to him, are riddled with sin. A thought, an attitude, an action, whatever that looks like, we all struggle and wrestle hard with sin. And so this morning as we spend time May God show us some things about ourselves. Let's pray. God, before we even break open your word, as we are already in your presence, as you are moving and working even now, help us. Help us. Amen. Let's read Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Of course, Isaiah telling the Israelites of who was coming, the Messiah. At the time, they didn't know that would be Jesus, but they knew that this one would come and restore not only uh, the sin, past, present, future, but that he would actually restore and give opportunity for all to come into a relationship with himself, not just the Israelites, not just the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, of which we in this room are many. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, of course, looking ahead, knowing where we are today. That was Christ on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, thinking it better. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God has a plan. God from the beginning had a plan to restore us by providing a divine substitute for us. That individual unknown at this point of this writing of this prophet speaking this to be Jesus, us post-Christ, knowing that person was Jesus, the Messiah, coming to save, to heal, to restore us to himself, knowing that in ourselves, we cannot do it. We're not capable of restoring ourselves to God on our own merit, on our own action, and the goodness that we claim in our lives. We require a blood sacrifice for us, that person being Jesus. And we're going to be in two additional places in the New Testament, even three, that you're going to want to keep your finger here in Isaiah as we flip to those. The first will be in John chapter 15. Now we're going to spend more time on this chapter in about four weeks, talking through what it means to truly abide. But in talking about Jesus relationally with him, if we don't at least bridge the subject, looking at this passage in Isaiah we would be missing something critical. John 15, beginning in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Our lives are supposed to, if we follow Jesus, bear fruit. Because God's working and moving so much in us, our lives are supposed to display and show the fruit of Christ. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Abide to rest, to spend time. The challenge there for us is we don't do a quiet time in order to check a box. We don't think, okay, I've read my 10 minutes and I've said my prayer and I'm moving on with the day. The abiding peace is actually resting in, loving the relationship with, 
for those of you who are married. Christ and the church, husband and wife, a reflection of what it's supposed to be like, what the relationship with Christ and the church is supposed to be, the way husbands and wives are to relate to one another in love, self-sacrifice, pouring your life out for. That is a fruit and an evidence of Christ moving and working in our lives, abiding with a spouse. I love taking drives when it's just Tiffany and I. I love our kids. But there are moments, not many, when Tiff and I just get to sit and be together. I love that. The abiding, the picture of that. How much deeper, richer, more intimate is it relationally that we're supposed to have that type of time, relationship with God. We just sit and we know him and we rest. Our world does not herald rest. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. We can't manufacture it unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified so that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. So definition of a follower of Jesus is disciple. Learning, imitating, mirroring. Who? Jesus. So our lives are supposed to look like Jesus' looked. Our prayer time with the Father is supposed to be similar to Jesus spending time with his Father. When we fast, we don't communicate it. We don't talk to people about it. We don't do it to try to get some kind of a merit badge and we got our fasting badge for the month. We fast, we withhold things from our lives intentionally to do what? To deep relationship with himself, calling that he's got in our lives, possibly working through sin issues or other things in us, praying, fasting for someone else, walking through a hard time. The way he loved people. You're like I am. You drive a car. Some. And you, you pass somebody that's holding a sign. Help. Need money. Need food. What's your instant reaction to that person? Let me tell you what mine is at times. Yeah, that person looks like they can work. They're probably making a better living than I'm making on that corner working it. What is that person's issue? I'm not rolling my window down. Okay, that's sometimes. Other times, see the individual, have deep compassion, care, concern, 
what would end a person to the point where they would have to stand on a corner and beg? What if that person were attached to a church family that could help them? Why aren't they? Has that person ever encountered and experienced the love of Christ? Ever. See, if we're abiding in Christ and we're abiding in his love, and he is whom we are mimicking, who did he go after? The Pharisees? The Sadducees? To see what God was doing in their lives? Loving it? The prideful religious sect? Thinking, man, they got it together. No, he went after the marginalized. The struggling, that society discounted. I'm not saying we need to pull our cars over every time we see somebody stop on the side of the road. The point of it is, are we enough in tune relationally with Jesus? Are we really, if we call ourselves followers, so deeply, intimately involved relationally with him, do we even see as he sees do we have his eyes, his ears, his heart? Ran across, across a, a great quote from Dallas Willard, and I'm, I'm still processing it. God will allow everyone into heaven who can possibly stand it. That's kind of an odd quote. God will allow everyone into heaven who can possibly stand it. Okay, what does that mean? Honestly, I don't know all of it yet. But here are a couple of things for us to consider. We call ourselves followers of Jesus, many of us. A call for a follower of Jesus is to die to self and to die to sin. Let's be honest. We love to sin at times, don't we? We love to gossip. We love to be selfish. We love to be the kings or queens of our own lives, areas, people, planet. Sin is fun. Doesn't deliver what's promised. Doesn't bring us fulfillment. Brings wreckage. But we still engage in it. We still enjoy it. And we don't enjoy dying to self. We don't. We don't love putting to death the things in our lives that are opposed to Christ. In fact, in some respects, we hate it. So the question is, if God is holy, and he is, and he's righteous, and he is, and he cannot allow sin to be in his presence... What in the world do we think heaven is going to be like? You can't escape God in heaven. And we, we get that, right? He, he's everywhere there. And so if we can't put to death here our addictions, if we can't put to death our attitudes, if we allow sin to reign in our lives instead of the righteousness of Christ then why in the world would we want to step into heaven? Because sin is not welcome there. We realize that. God will not be in the presence of sin. And so if we talk about how we want 
heaven so badly in our lives, what do we think that's going to look like one day? God will allow everyone into heaven who can possibly stand it. Abiding in Christ, resting in him, knowing him, changes us and brings the desire in our lives to put to death ourselves, regardless of how difficult. And oh, is it difficult. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. How can a loving God condemn anyone to hell? Ever hear that question? Ever ask it yourself? The definition that most of the world knows of God is that God is love. And so a barrier for people to come into a relationship with him is this aspect of wrath or judgment or would God really condemn anyone to hell? We've already stated God cannot be in the presence of sin. It is an abomination to him. And so for those who refuse to surrender their lives to Jesus... He cannot allow the sin, those individuals, without the blood of Christ covering it, to be in his presence for eternity. He can't allow it. It goes against who he is. It goes against the character and person of God. And so while some would say God is condemning them to hell, and while I can see that aspect, it is the truth that if people refuse to surrender their lives to Jesus, they are condemning themselves. One day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So whether it be here or when they see God face to face one day, every knee will bow and everyone will claim it. It doesn't mean that every person is going to find Jesus and all of a sudden enter heaven because now they're before the throne of God and they're in this situation where they, 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 they need to do something in that moment. Well, at that point, it's too late. We have one life to live and then the judgment. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest, known among us, that God sent his only son into the world. There we saw Isaiah 53, the picture of who was coming, so that we might live through him. Okay, what in the world does that mean? To live through him. We've already talked about it. To live through his lens. If we were to honestly evaluate our lives... Do we more so look at people the way God does? More so look at people through the lens of Jesus? Or through our flesh and through our sin? Condemnation? I'm better than they are, so I'm okay? Through that term, through him, means that we are eyes, hands, feet, Lives of Jesus. Honest evaluation. How are we doing there? Do we really see through the lens of Christ? Verse 10. In this is love. 
Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, propitiation, there's one of those words. What does that mean? To appease. To atone for. Jesus coming, dying on the cross, raising again, giving us opportunity for relationship with him. The propitiation, the appeasement of a holy God for our unholiness. That's what that term means. Jesus being our substitute, taking our place on our own. None of us can restore ourselves to God. We need a substitute, that person being Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, then we'll go back to Isaiah. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, going all the way back to verse 6. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, at our worst, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, made right, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, the ability to be made right through the blood of Christ. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then we see John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. All. That he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, and have, but have eternal life. He died for the, all sin. He died for all people but it doesn't mean that all are going to turn their lives to him. Although all have committed the sin of treason. Treason, in our world, typically, the result if someone commits that against their country is the death penalty. We, in our sin, have committed treason against God. And the result should be death. But Christ offers us life. Back to Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and the rich man in his death. Although he had no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, meaning that death would not be finality, the final step for Jesus he would raise from the dead. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his 
knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There's a status change. That scripture was read earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. She is new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Status change. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you remember our series in Colossians? Christ's life lived in us. Christ's life lived through us. That indeed, if he were here, Christ would actually take our place and live for us. Remember that? Whole series in Colossians. That he would actually be us. So, Side-by-side comparison. Your name, my name, Jesus. Similar? Different? Any crossover whatsoever? Any desire for him to be in that place in our lives to be the number one? Got another quote to read and then uh, two questions and we'll be done. Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, 40 years ago, that was written. I cannot believe that. It's been that long ago. Um, but he, he wrote this then. Love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering, he could actually absorb all the evil of humanity and so heal it, forgive it, and redeem it. God loves, God loves us. God loves you. So here are two questions. And I kind of opened it in the beginning of the message. First, how's your level of irritation? If we are living in the love and the reality and presence of God, our lives should reflect less irritation and more love. What's the last week look like in your home? Irritated? Popping off? Frustrated? If we are living in the love of Christ, the longer the days go, the less our irritation should be because our focus is not on the things of this world, but on Jesus. Knowing that everyone that we come into contact with is in desperate need of his love, including us. Second question. How are you doing in the area of discouragement? That also should be growing less and less in our lives if we are truly living in the peace of Christ. How discouraged are you about what's happening in your world? How discouraged are you in what's happening in your own life? Can you see that God has better for you? 
can you see that the love of God can change you? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and have not yet, in some time considered, what is heaven really going to be like? Do you need to spend some time reconsidering that today? Where are you with the Lord today? Let's pray.